survive himself because I mean he's, I think his days are numbered really <clears throat> and uh, to come out of it with some maybe some some kind of positive image like being a martyr or some kind of Arab patriarch I'm just guessing, really. Anyway, it's just really, he's done some blissful state of, of just not feeling anything at all. Just a kind of maybe a moronic <laughs> smile and, and, and total non-feeling for the rest of your life. Because thought uh, in itself, we tend to, as I've said before, thinking and perception, it has no feeling to it. The word love, uh, and just to think the word love doesn't mean that you love. It's not the same as love, is it? Or these are, you can you can have ideas about how everyone should love each other, and uh, and hold to these views and still not feel any love at all. And that, that's because of the function of the mind that. That level is, is, is outside of the realm of feeling. Emotions tend to be frightening. I think especially in, in, in Britain, people I think very much frightened of emotions. They're always regarded as, you know, kind of stiff upper lip and don't, don't kind of express how you really feel. Uh, is an attitude of, of uh, very much you know, inculcated in people in this, in this country. And uh, you go to India, I mean, you find that people express everything. You know, I mean, people uh, express their anger and their love quite, I mean, it's too much. It's too much the other way. Where, <coughs> where uh, you wish they would be a little more restrained. <laughs> I come from a family where emotion was never expressed. You didn't, you didn't express how you felt. You never admitted anything. You just put on the, the show of uh, being good and obedient. And, and you didn't, weren't supposed to upset your mother or father. So it was, uh, it was an emotionally dead family I'm from. And uh, the result is that emotions have always been embarrassing for me. And uh, um, even though I have, uh, you know, I'm not without them or with strong passions, this, this side has, has had to be really 
uh, turned to and examined and welcomed rather than just, than just uh, using monasticism as another form of suppressing it out because monastic discipline and forms can be very suppressive as you well know sit here and and you just sit on top of your emotions and you can you you have when everything's ordered you don't you're not called upon to to feel very much towards others you can your your relationships are quite formalized and, and ceremonial hierarchical so you you uh, you can get out of a lot of things in a, in a, in a monastic form. Well, I say in marriages and that, you, you know, you, it's more difficult to, to, uh, to keep that re- re- distance and reserve because you're having to, you don't have the, the uh, disciplinary rules and the agreements on how to behave with each other. So you see in modern marriages where people just uh, kind of uh, use each other as emotional objects, blaming each other, or you know, or just emotional blackmail, or, or uh, intimidation. So much of what people call you know relationship is is really just a kind of. Um, using each other in some ways or because of not knowing how to do anything else. So one needs forms, you know, like even marriage needs to be given some kind of quality, some agreement where it, it's not just uh, kind of idealized. We should love each other for, for eternity and then after five minutes want to murder each other where the, you know, where the, it's based on just romantic impressions which don't last. Romance is a, is a very uh, fleeting experience for most of us, isn't it? It's not nothing to build anything upon. So, the, like I say, monastic, this is why reflecting on monastic form on, because it is a, a reflective form, it should, therefore I, I've been emphasizing how to use it for that and not just as a repressive form. It's not to just be restrained as an act of, of suppressing your feelings. You know, I mustn't feel like that and I mustn't be like that. And, and uh, just to, just to, as a, a kind of rigid standard to control your life. It's, it's not renunciation, nor res- proper restraint. It's just ignorance and suppression, and then the result is is a very unpleasant. It makes monasticism a very unpleasant experience. You know, in, uh, in our, because we have prescribed relationships, according to Vinaya, we have um, disciplinary, disciplinary rules and tradition, but it's it's we're learning to to use it for for reflection, for being for being paying attention, for understanding, for looking at. 
rather than just coming from ideals of monastic life and then feeling disillusioned with it because it isn't it isn't is it isn't doesn't always fit the ideal of monastic life we we can we uh, are now uh, looking at our own feelings of despair or disappointment or disillusionment <clears throat> like when I feel disillusioned when I used to feel disillusioned with monastic life one could you know the critical mind could go and say well it's you know, it's, it's not what I thought and I'm disappointed with it and blame monastic life it, it's not it's not what I thought and it's, a, and it's therefore it's at fault or the reflective practice is to observe that feeling of I feel disappointed with this it's not, it, it doesn't live up to my standards uh, it's not what I thought and then you're then you're beginning to to really uh, see how what it really is, where the problems really lie, where what is the cause of suffering. And do you think monastic discipline, monks, nuns, all these cause you suffering? Then you're still in, uh, coming from the avicca, bhajaya, sankara. You're still thinking that that it's the external things that make me suffer. When you get the external things right, when everything fits the ideal, then I'll be able to really get somewhere. When, all the, when, when, when everything is what it should be. And I listen to this in myself. Uh, you know, the kind of conceit that, that I want everything to be ideal for me. I want the ideal teacher, the ideal monastery, ideal monks and nuns, ideal lay people. Everything should be, it should be like this and it should be like that. It should be uh, always this for me, you know, so that I can really practice. And because nothing is really as perfect as it should be, including myself, you, and the tradition and everything, then it's, it's, it's your fault. And I can't get my practice together because of you. Which is the whinging mind, isn't it? The, the kind of dependent child that says, Mommy loves me, and, it, and it's because Mommy doesn't love me that I'm unhappy. Or the, the society should be fair. But it's not. So therefore, because society is unfair, it's ruined my life. So that means you're set up to be a victim. As long as you believe that, then your life's victim. Because who, who, which one of us here has had perfect perfection from perfect parents, perfect everything? Because that's not, it's impossible, isn't it? Where's a perfect country? I can't think of one perfect country in this, on this planet. And I think of my parents, I think they were pretty good, but they were certainly not perfect. And they did things that certainly gave me wrong uh, views and caused me all kinds of confusion and problems. My mother and father, even though they loved me, because they weren't arahants and wise sages, 
then they they did you know they had their emotional problems too imagine you know having a baby and and uh, having to uh, go out and work and and do all these things and and they're not arahants yet and then they do they make mistakes and they get frustrated and they they feel unfulfilled in their own lives and they get and of course uh, they shouldn't be that way should they when they had me they should have been they should have gone through a Vipassana retreat, at least attained Sotapanna, stream entry, and they should have they should have had everything prearranged so that when I came into the world, I would not be subjected to unfair conditions or inferior situations. So it's my mother and father's fault. Does that does that ring true to you? Is that how you want to be? Is that someone like that? blaming everything else because the world and parents and societies and teachers and a whole lot aren't what aren't living up to the high standards that we imagine they should they should be able to but life is like this it's not we're not uh, we're not victims when we see that that we don't need perfection uh, to 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 practice and to realize Dhamma. We don't have to have the best or come from the, the you know, a, an untainted background and have the best of everything. Because it's like this, we can, we can work with life as we're living it. With its, all its imperfections and its inferior qualities and its uh, unfairnesses and injustices and these aren't, these aren't obstacles to our enlightenment. Unfairness, injustice, all these things are not obstacles to enlightenment. Having rotten parents is not an obstacle to enlightenment. Or just having ordinary parents that aren't arahants, or even sotapanas, that's not an obstacle. So the obstacle the Buddha pointed to is the dunha upadana bhava problem, the desire and grasping and becoming out of this ignorance. That's the, that's that's where the that's where you put your attention. Once you see that, then um, then we are, then you're okay. You can whatever. You, life brings you and whatever has happened to you is just part of your karma. I am heir my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma. It's, it's one's karmic uh, inheritance. And we learn from that, whatever it is. So some of the most horrible problems and um, faults, personal faults and that, rather than being obstacles, are oftentimes the catalyst to enlightenment. And some of the some of the de the, the gross defects in the and the uh, I mean the hopeless flaws in our character emotional nature. Say when when seen in this uh, 
from the position of Buddha seeing the Dhamma, then it is those 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 things that really hurt and and seem unfair and seem to be you know weigh on our minds and be tremendous burdens and obstacles to us, then are really the the, the dukkha that takes us to the realization to have faith and to practice and to realize truth. So that's the that's the wonder of the, of this life of Buddha Dhamma is that it's it's telling you that what whatever uh, life brings, whatever happens to us, that isn't really terribly important. It's, it's how we understand it, how we deal with it, how we use it. And that, that's something that we learn to do. It's not something you, you should expect somebody else to tell you and, and uh, instruct you. That like here at Amarbhati, you can give, give kind of reflective talks and advice and encouragement. But you have to do it. I mean, you, no one can do it for you. And even though you you try and you fail, you keep learning because it's like it's it's important to just keep going, not to to let failure be an obstacle to to your spiritual development. Failure is very much part of spiritual development. The same being brought up in a family where emotions were were almost uh, unrecognized, instead of being a burden or an obstacle to enlightenment, is to me a very helpful opportunity. Because I'm really, uh, because of the suffering that comes from being frightened of emotion and, and unable to to express one's feelings. And, and all the fears that go along with that, one, I've, I've learned to use that as an object for reflection. Because it's the suffering, feeling, feeling uh, frightened of what other people think. Like if you're from one of these families, you're always you're always trying to be proper and good, so and and you're praised for being that way, and then you're you're criticised for not being that way. So you there's this desire to there's an incredible concern about what others think of you, which is suffering. It's really miserable to always be worried about what others are thinking. <laughs> So, I take that, I've taken that, I think, this, this, in Thailand or here in Britain or whatever that, that, that feeling arises. And I start feeling, oh, this person doesn't like me, or, or what do they think of me, or maybe I shouldn't have said that. It's a kind of self-concern. One uh, can take that as an upaya, or reflection. 
remember I, I was one who could get offended easily. It's easy to hurt my feelings. When I was a child, I was called a very sensitive child, which means that I was easily offended. <laughs> so, I'm going to say, you're so sensitive. <laughs> so, uh, and and then when when you grow up, you you know you're not quite as uh, you know you, you learn how to to maintain some demeanor of coolness and you know aloofness and I don't care what you think, bugger off. <laughs> but actually, you're very concerned. <laughs> Then the, then the reflective mind is looking at that. So I've used it, like the, uh, in Thailand when Lumpa Cha put me on the tamat to give talks. Oh, that was the first time he asked me to give a talk and in Thai, my Thai was atrocious. And, uh, and uh, he said, uh, he kind of announced on a one part day that I was going to give a talk and I nearly, I, I panicked. I just got in such a state that I I just uh, really freaked out and I okay. <laughs> said, oh, well, don't worry about it, and kind of let, let me go, <laughs> laughing. And, uh, well, I got out of that. And then uh, it wasn't too distant future where I got, uh, he put me in another situation and I couldn't get out of it, right on the spot. And uh, there I went up into the high seat and <coughs> And I was really, you know, just having to sit up there and then speak a language that you're not, you know, have confidence in speaking Thai. You know, and speaking English would be hard enough, but Thai was even more frightening. And then, then uh, just uh, beginning, and uh, of course the people were just very, Thai people uh, just wanted to hear if I had a voice, I think. I didn't have to say anything terribly profound or why. They just said the, the simple things that I knew how to say in time. They said, oh, very good talk. <laughs> very good talk. And then the word got around all over Ubo, and the Pratsumato gives very good talk. <laughs> well, it was very nice to be praised like that. Where the talk that you thought was pretty silly. <coughs> then, uh, but then the, uh, the self-consciousness, uh, then I became a really, you know, designed to please everyone. I would, uh, I, I would, uh, you know, when people asked me to give these talks, I'd always do it and I wanted to please everyone. And because of that desire to please, uh, then I would suffer because when I I'd say things and I'd look and I'd, somebody get up and walk out or, or uh, I'd imagine all these things you know just uh, people start yawning when I get into the high seat and I'd take it personally <laughs> and I would be sitting there then in Thailand sometimes they don't you know they they'll they'll just lay down on the floor and sleep right in front of you <laughs> all night sittings and. Things like this, so 
I was getting offended. You know? <laughs> Some one time I remember on a, on a katina, one of these katina ceremonies where they, you, you have these kind of marathon talks. And uh, anyway, I, was, I became quite indignant. People were, were leaving the sala and, and by the time I finished, there's hardly anyone left in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, <laughs> I thought uh, I'm not going to give any more talks. If they're going to be that way, I'm not going to give any more talks. And I'm really offended. I'm fed up. This is, this is, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't have to do this. I didn't come here. I didn't become a monk to do this. And then, uh, but the reflection on that mood was, is this, is this, you know, is this a skillful thing to follow? And you start watching and start really in examining the sense of being offended, wanting to please people and then being offended and, and uh, wanting to, to be accepted and then fear of being unacceptable. Uh, they work together and then one sparks off the other. So I started using that, that, uh, that particular problem is a kind of deliberate upaya, or like a, something to really study, something that really hurt you, and that was uh, a, a source of a lot of suffering in your life, but which you took and take. This is this is where I'm suffering right now. This is what really drives me crazy, and and my heart gets offended by this, and I really can't stand it. And all that. I take that and I I investigate it. <coughs> So then that was, that because of that, there was an increasing amount of strength. Because if I just followed, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm fed up, I didn't become a monk to do this, I'm just going to sit and practice, I want to go off to a cave. That was my kind of, the, whenever I get a fin, I, I want to go off to the cave. I don't want to be, I don't want to be involved in this, I want to go off to my cave. So this is like, like, that's why I encourage you to take what really hurts you and, and, and really upsets you and really frightens you and use it as a, as a skillful means because that's, that's your karma, that's, that's, where, that's, that's where you need to, to really look, where you hurt, where you, the pain is, where the despair and misery are. That's, that's the point, that's the sign, that's the first noble truth that's uh, offering itself for your reflection and understanding. Where, the, where when we don't do that, then we try to act and we, we, we use the life always, and the life hurts us. Being a monk or nun becomes painful and upsetting. Because when, when we don't, when things don't go the way we want, when it doesn't, uh, when we don't get the results that we expected, then we just feel disappointed and uh, disillusioned with it. And if we leave then, then we, we just repeat that pattern over and over again in our lives. 
when I was in graduate school, there was this, well, in Berkeley, there was this woman, a uh, very nice lady, who was with me in these seminars, Asian seminars, the American lady, and she'd been married about six, seven times. And uh, I said, why did, why did you get married so many times? <laughs> Well, I didn't. I never liked marriage. I liked the romance. I liked the the, the process of the, the relationship, the romance, and then the marriage. But then after that, I don't like it anymore. So the, it just goes, you know, because that just goes that far. Never learns. And she's getting on into forty. So I imagine the opportunities for romance were lessening. So that the going from one thing to the next, the repeating the same mistake. But this is where each one of us has to develop our practice, because you know where you hurt. You can't ask me to tell you or 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 you know me to give you the skillful means. What I say is only for, you know, is an example of how I've done it. I'm not saying you, you must do it like I do. You must take the same skillful means, borrow my skillful means. I mean, if you can, if, if, if you find it helpful, please do. But that's not what I'm really encouraging. It, it, each one of us has to learn from the way we are. And uh, that's why we need to know the way we are, not not try to. And if and if we don't know the way we are, if we just don't know who we are or what we are, that's the way we are. That's something to investigate. <laughs> just the feeling of not knowing who you are, because you don't have to be anyone. But whatever, whatever, is, whether it's a kind of anger, a kind of strong uh, anger, or these kind of sharp passions, or whether it's the, the more subtle forms of doubt and, and uh, despair that haunt your mind and, and cause you misery. With the developing of, of the heart practice, as you then instead of instead of uh, of having becoming emotionless and kind of just you know unfeeling, one be one has the courage to feel life rather than becoming a kind of brass or marble Buddha rupa with the same blissful uh, expression twenty four hours a day. One is. Is, is instead as a, as a human being with these human bodies and their sensitive, their sense organs and the, their weaknesses and problems, one, uh, one, say, isn't, uh, isn't, is willing to be sensitive, has the courage and the, the confidence and the faith to be totally sensitive to life, rather than shrinking away and hiding, you feel quite willing to take on life as, as it comes to you. You have a, a 
a kind of fearlessness that comes from understanding. You don't, you're not looking for a cave anymore. You're not afraid of being offended or being misunderstood. You know how to deal with, how to work with uh, the, the problems of a community or a society or personal problems or relationships with others. These are no longer threatening uh, conditions to one because uh, you, when, you, when you can develop these ubayas and work with the suffering and, and learn from it, then you, you're not, you, you needn't be frightened of anything because fear is always comes from that uh, is that state of, of uh, thinking that the problems are overwhelming or that they're more than what they are or that you're you're a hopeless case in believing it or that that there's a that you wouldn't be able to take it you wouldn't be able to stand it you would be completely overwhelmed or destroyed by this or that thing or whatever then we're frightened all the time because whatever we imagine is going to, I might get overwhelmed I might not be able if they ask me to give a talk and my ties aren't good enough I couldn't stand it. What if I said the wrong thing? And even a simple thing can be overwhelming. Or be easily offended and somebody, somebody gets up and walks out in the talk. Fed up. I'm not going to give any more talks if that's the way. They find out they, they have to go to the loo. They've been sitting there trying to pay attention because they're desperately interested in what you're saying. And then finally they realize they better get out quick. But then you can take it on a personal level. They don't like me. They don't like what I'm saying. They're getting out. They're leaving because I feel very offended by that. One can be that silly. But then it's all right to be offended rather than, than trying to not be offended by anything. But to use this feeling of being offended as and being upset or disturbed by things as, as a sign for practice. Because we're not trying to become somebody that's never offended by anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to become someone who doesn't, is never offended by anything at all, but I'm willing to use that feeling for practice. This is, the Dhamma, the, the first noble truth that, that uh, I use, I develop because if, if that's the way I am, that's the character I have and that, that's, that's, I can develop a skillful means around that use it for practice rather than seeing it as, a, as an obstacle to my practice like, like a man's mind very much works like this you you can one point it on something. Uh, I don't know. I don't, women don't seem minds don't seem to work so much in this way. But uh, a male mind gets very one pointed, concentrated on an object, and becomes thoroughly absorbed. You know, intensely interested in one thing, and that suppresses everything else. So you you kind of uh, you know if you're if you're aiming at a target. You, that's all, your mind's totally with that, so that you're, any kind of reflectiveness on, say, the moral, whether it's moral or whether it's how many people might be killed or that, 
that doesn't come till after, afterward, because uh, you've one-pointed your mind. <clears throat> and like I've been saying in the morning reflections, that makes, makes you insensitive. You don't feel anything <coughs> because you're absorbed. You're so concentrated and absorbed. So this is uh, like compassion is more, uh, you know, quality, uh, uh, ability to to reflect and understand uh, the common suffering. Uh, and uh, say, like, if you start thinking of Iraqis, not as Iraqis, but as mothers and fathers, or sons and daughters, or grandparents, or fellow human beings, or that, then you and then that, then that, then that allows a compassionate feeling to arise. But when you just see the enemy as the enemy, then, then that, then you, your whole aim, that, that whole attitude of the enemy is to get rid of it, kill it, stop it. <clears throat> so that's why, like in uh, developing the mind, you, you, you need both qualities of concentration, but also reflect, like samatha vipassana. Uh, ability to one point and put your mind onto something and then to be able to reflect, contemplate, investigate the way it is. And that's a, that's a skillful use of the human mind. <clears throat> but one can criticize these, uh, like the, the military for doing this. But it is a uh, it is exciting, and uh, it's mesmerized. It holds your attention. It must be incredibly uh, uh, thrilling to do that, to be able to fly in one of those jets and zoom <coughs> and bang that and so forth and shoot down things. And so you find that's why uh, men can easily just, uh, you know, like. <coughs> Like, you wonder why, why men uh, can just kill animals. You know, why, why men like to go out and hunt and just kill things, not even for food, but just, just because you can, just because it's so exciting to aim a gun and kill something. That it's not, you're not thinking of the animal at all as being a, if you think of the animal as Bambi, you can't do it. <laughs> As soon as Bambi enters your consciousness, you can't do it. <laughs> if you just see it as a target, you know, then you then you 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 can aim. Uh, you more or less can aim more accurately. You have you can't bring the the object into your mind with compassion, but merely as a target, as something to aim at and concentrate your mind on, be fully with and and shoot it. And that's a very <clears throat> exciting thing to be able to do. Your mind is, your mind is, you know, your, your, uh, if you, if you have, say, say, if you have a boring life and you're not very happy with anything and you fight with your wife and can't get along with your kids, nice to go out hunting. I mean, you can, your mind isn't concerned. You, all that's dropped behind you. You don't carry it with you in those moments. So that's say the, say the, uh, 
using the mind, but with ignorance. It's, it's a vicha bhajaya sankara. And then as you <coughs> develop, like with vipassana, your vipassana meditations, the mind, uh, satipatthana, you're, you're lifting yourself out of, of the conditioned realm. You're getting in touch with ultimate truth. Then there's, then there's, with that, then there's balance. Things are in perspective. Things are seen as for what they are. <clears throat> or even compassion, or the ideal of compassion, can get soppy. It can make us flabby. <clears throat> we can, like too much matter, makes you kind of just weak and flabby. You just, oh, we got to be kind all the time. We shouldn't say anything harsh. And, always be gentle. <laughs> we mustn't ever raise our voice. And anybody raise their voice. Please, we must be kind, understanding. And, and too much of that, you just uh, a massive jelly. You have no, nothing to hold you up. You just uh, melt on the floor. So there's, <clears throat> that's just sentimental metta, that, that's uh, foolish, isn't it? It's weak and, and wishy-washy kind of thing. So you, this, this um, wisdom is, is the kind of, panya is, is the emphasis in the Theravada school anyway. Um, because that, that panya, wisdom, mindfulness wisdom, allows this compassion to operate freely and, and in a way that it's, it's, it's coming from the pure mind rather than just from sentimental idealism. And compassion is a, is a, is more active. I mean, it's in, it's a dynamic, isn't it? So that it's it's how we relate to things that happen to us. It's not it's get it out of the ideal realm, uh, idealist position of we should all be compassionate to apply to 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 its to its dynamic form of living in responding uh, compassionately <coughs> rather than forming ideas about it and clinging to it. Where panya, if you notice, is, is this reflective ability of the mind to see things as they are. So it, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's has a more absolute fixed quality to it. It's, not, it's more static in its, in its, in its symbolism static, fixed, like the Bodhi tree is the, is the point, the place of enlightenment. So then the, the Bodhi tree <coughs> is a fixed place, it's not kind of roaming around the world saving sentient beings. But from that, from that Bodhi tree then, the, then there's the enlightenment, <coughs> the scene properly in which the Buddha goes and uh, serves humanity, you see. But in very practical ways, he wasn't 
we must be kind to all sentient beings kind of thing but it was it was direct uh, practice of, of loving kindness compassion joy uh, equanimity it was dynamic uh, relating rather than than static idealization of sentiments Kind of these uh, yin yang, and the, the kind of dualism of uh, of language and conditioned realm, where we then, you know, we see what, when you create one thing, then there's its opposite. So if there's condition, there's the unconditioned. As it's thought, that's the creating concepts. So realization isn't isn't creating concepts is it but it's um, observing uh, through direct observation through observing through uh, mindfulness how things are just it's a insight into the moment not a, a theory or an ideal uh, that we that we that we grasp and then operate from that from that uh, theory or from that doctrine. So realizing the unconditioned, you don't you're not realizing a thing. It's 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 always conditioned and unconditioned relate to each other. It's one thing. They they relate their relationship is with each other. It's not there's the unconditioned, it's something over here and conditioned over here. But it's how they in the form we're in, uh, because of the power, uh, we're, we're, li- we're born in a, in a con- in the, and born implies conditioning, birth implies conditioning, therefore the unconditioned is a realization always from the conditioned. That's why dukkha uh, is, takes us, the, is the first noble tooth to see non-suffering or attachment to non-attachment and uh, desire to not desirelessness greed to non-greed so these always see the condition as the as rather than as something that that conditions are anicca tukkanata and i my refuge is in the unconditioned campus that's coming from an idea <laughs> in your head, you know, it's a, you're not, you'll never get anywhere with that. So, but so the Buddha pointed to the condition, <coughs> understand it, and if you understand the condition, it ceases. And when it ceases, there's a realization of its absence. So even a reflection like right now. Non-hatred is like, uh, like right now, there's no hatred, no feeling of aversion in my mind. Non-aversion is like this. Now that's a reflection on, 
so that you're you're in a con- in this moment now you con- there's consciousness of non-aversion or non-greed and it's like this non-greed non-hatred is this way So in that, you're, there's, a con- there's a conscious moment there and a recognition and wisdom of non-hatred or non-aversion, non-greed, non-delusion. You see, then you're, you're kind of, what you're thinking is you're, you're training the mind, bringing into, using your con- ability to be conscious, because you're born. Birth means, as a human being, means that you're conscious. Birth implies consciousness. To be conscious, you have to be born. And then, then, uh, so, so, these bodies are born. We're born into this form. So this, con- this is the experience of consciousness. Subject, object. I'm conscious here. I assume you're all conscious too. But, but consciousness is here and now, right here. You know, as far as I'm, as far as my experience goes, right now, I'm con- I'm conscious of you. <laughs> Say on eye level, it's eye conscious. That this is this way you're, you're you're establishing the way it is in in with wisdom. You're establishing with banya the way things are. Then you can just uh, uh, see the the artifices we create out of fear and desire, like like uh, the the reactions, the habitual reactions we have, the way the mind will just you know go on and complain or grumble or criticize or or fantasize or whatever. You you have at least a way of seeing it of seeing all that, that conditioning of the mind as conditions that arise and cease. So then you're, so then you can look at even the most awful kind of conditions as an object. You know, where, if you, if you don't have that perspective then there's a lot of things we just can't look at because they're so awful and horrible. And uh, and you think and you and if you think on a personal level, you I don't want to I don't want to think like that. I must be a horrible person to have thoughts like that. Thinking uh, awful thought, hateful thoughts, or brutal thoughts, or maniacal thoughts. I must be a horrible person to have thoughts like that. A good man would never think like that. Only a bad man would think like that. So I must be bad. And this, conc- this is the how you deduct. From from the personal view, isn't it? If I have bad thoughts, then I'm a bad person. Isn't that how we think? That's how I think. Well, then, uh, from the Buddha position, you're you're not you're not taking it personally. So the bad thoughts that come in are observed as conditions rather than as personal qualities that are bad. And that's what they are. Then you're then you're seeing Dhamma. The other is not really the way it is. It's the creation of your mind. I have bad thoughts, therefore I'm a bad man. 
is that's not really the way it is. That's how you think it is out of conditioning, the way your mind's been conditioned to perceive and conceive yourself and good and bad. So that's why this refuge is such an important uh, contemplation. Why we have to really put this refuge into our, take this refuge and use it in in this way, practical way, rather than just a kind of sentimental way. Because I've been able to look at, very directly, at really ugly things that come into my mind. And just to be able to, to see it and not not be caught in the fear or or self condemnation or anxiety about and I it makes you compassionate. You you develop compassion because you can understand why people do the things they do and act the way they act. You can understand how that happens. Because you're you you can see how you could be that way if you've been conditioned in, in various ways. Because it's, a, it's, a, it's the blindness that comes from conditioning. So you, you can't, you can, you can feel compassion for, say, Saddam Hussein, or the Yorkshire Ripper, or any kind of most uh, detestable Maniacs that that you know the serial killers or the brutes and the the uh, corrupt beings, you you can you understand it as as uh, like Jesus forgive them for they know not what they do kind of recognition. They don't know what they're doing. If you knew what, if you understood dumb, you don't do those things. You don't act that way. But you act that way because you don't know. And you, you have all these ideas in your mind and you perceive things in a, in, a, in a fixed way. And there's a lot of influences affecting us, you know, like like very basic instinctual drives and, and archetypal uh, images affect us. Uh, there's a lot we just, we've never even contemplated, but signs and just like like uh, various there's certain forms that affect the mind very strongly you know on a, a subliminal basis that's what advertising does sometimes it's it's affecting us in a, you know not in a kind of hard sell obvious way but appealing on a on a on a, on a subtler level but very strong a kind of Vanity and and primordial energies and that can be set off if you're not mind if it's not mindless because that's just the way it is. We've got all realms within us, all possibilities from the devils to the to the angels to become as far as the human ability to become conditioned to be reborn in various levels, different realms, we've got, we can be reborn in all those realms listed in the Buddhist cosmology from the Avechi hell, the uh, different hell realms to the, to the hungry ghosts, the animal realm, human, Deva, Brahma, and, and the 
ultimate refinement of uh, arupa, formless realm. So from course, the avici, avici hell is is a symbol for the coarsest possibility of human experience, Un seemingly unmitigated misery and anguish and despair and anger. I mean, unmitigated, not one moment of relief. There's just one miserable, horrible, angry, hot moment, one right after another. That would be uh, Avicii. Then they go to the very top of the list, uh, uh, neither perception nor non-perception, the subtlest. That's the ultimate subtlety of conditions, of possibilities of, of, of uh, rebirth into such a subtle uh, refinement of consciousness, but it's still, it's still attachment. It's still dana upadana. And it's so, so ultimate, so very, very refined. And then we find ourselves in this human, born into this human state, which is like this, is you, you, you can kind of catch flashes and glimpses of these different realms, but most of our life is, is just like this, you know, is sitting, standing, walking, lying down, breathing, eating, um, Bathing, putting on your clothes, taking them off, go, bathe, uh, going to bed, sleeping, getting up. Uh, then, the, then the relationships of male to female and person to person and mother to son and daughter and father to son and daughter and so forth. All these, these, these are the human realm. Uh, our, uh, you know personal feelings, our personalities, our sense of, of being a, a separate person and how we relate to liking and not liking, loving and hating. Where most of, uh, most of our days really not neither one nor the other, if you really observe. If, you, if there's mindfulness and you're aware of neither Atuka Matsuka Vedana, then you're, you're aware of, of how most, most of a human lifespan is, is really more on the Atuka Matsuka Vedana, neither one nor the other. So you know that, you're aware, you're aware of that, kind of neither nor, neither happy nor unhappy, it's this way, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Neither one extreme nor the other. And then you reflect. You can you can you can bring that into conscious awareness. So that's why, say, being non-angry. Right now, there's there's not a I can't detect any negativity in my mind at this moment. Non-negative. It's a double negative. like this. It's very peaceful to realize non-anger. It's not, it's not taken from the position, no, I'm not angry. 
noted, I'm not saying that I'm not angry with anyone today. It's just a, a reflection on right now, this moment. That I don't, there's not, there, I'm just taking the, the perception of anger and aversion and just seeing if there's any in my mind, if there's any feeling of that at this moment. It's like this, no, no, no aversions is this way, non-aversions like this, it's quite pleasant, peaceful. But how many, how many of you would notice that? that that's a, reflecting on and, and also, like, when you do feel anger, when you suddenly feel angry or averse, then you, you can take that opportunity to be patient with that feeling and let it, and allow it to go. Stay with it till it goes. Say, say recognizing it, accepting it. And then you realize non-anger is like this. So you're, you're, there's this realizing going on, and realizing the way it is, the condition, the unconditioned, or anger and non-anger. There's not the condition of anger, non-unconditioned, not absolute unconditioned, in a sense of this is the unconditioned, non-anger is the unconditioned. That's what we that's another grasping an idea. This is a reflective way of reflecting, developing reflective wisdom, so that you're taking the, the condition, admitting it, accepting it, understanding that you re you, you're contemplating it as an impermanent thing, you know, you're watching it, because you're, you're, you're aware that it's something that, that has arisen because it, it's not like this all the time, and then it's gone, and the realization of non-anger. That's a way to develop, develop the path, if you, to get the, the, the samaditi, the right understanding, or, so that the path is very, very clear for you. The, this is what the Four Noble Truths is, you know, is to, practicing and reflecting on the Four Noble Truths is all about. So please go ahead. You know what, what your react, emotional reactions are to, to such uh, experiences. <coughs> so it, it's a, uh, She's uh, <coughs> teaching us something, rather than looking at her as disrupting the retreat. How many of you think she's disrupting the retreat? You don't dare. Yeah. But I mean, as far as, uh, as the perception of a serious retreat goes, you see, so if you, uh, 
you know, th these things always help us to come to terms with, uh, with our own, uh, you know, emotional reactions. The, uh, because like people like that, uh, we, you can't, uh, they operate in their own way. So they aren't, you know, they'll, they'll tend to defy in a, in a, in a, in a community that's very conforming. And uh, they tend to be outrageous in a, in a community that's, that's very uh, kind of proper and, and moral and restrained. So that we can feel, you know, one can feel very kind of threatened by somebody being outrageous, not conforming, not fitting in. And I certainly can feel that way. <clears throat> but then, but then, uh, to really observe that feeling, and, uh, to bear with it rather than to kind <coughs> of to suppress it, not to suppress your feelings, but to to let these things bring up uh, conditions. Don't be frightened. Don't be. You know, we're not trying to be be saints and act. Uh, like arahants, but to, to really see Dhamma and understand things of your own kind of fears and, and desires that come up are to be, can be used for enlightenment rather than seeing uh, this is judging it, say, in a, in a, on a personal level or in, a, in an ideal way, like yeah, an ideal retreat, this wouldn't happen. We could send her off to the hospital, get rid of her, could do that, and uh, that's one possibility. But the psychiatrist felt it would be best if she stayed here. So then uh, this gives us the opportunity to uh, to use the situation to make it to know more well, where our uh, what, what happens when when such things occur in our lives. I wouldn't want to like I went to Sammy Ling. <clears throat> couple of years ago, and then they take in these people, kind of mentally disturbed people, and uh, as a kind of practice, so that you go there, the first person I saw, I understand Sammy Ling, was this uh, absolutely mad-looking woman sitting out on the front porch. She looked like a totally mad <laughs> creature, the hair all like that. It's quite, you know, going into this place, it's greeted by such a creature. And uh, so they, then they have, they take in these people, and, they, and I think the government helps, you know, financially. But then you talk to the community, and it's pretty difficult for them to, to have to live with that all the time. And... Uh, so recognize that, that there's no intention on our part. We're not kind of deliberately bringing people like that here just to 
to as a practice. But when it happens, <laughs> then that's the way it is. The intention for the community, for monastic community, is to to make available uh, the opportunities for practice of dhamma and uh, keeping of sila so forth. That is the intention. Then during the, our lives, these things happen. So then we we uh, we that's part of the flow of our life now. Until it's time for it to stop. But let that happen accordingly, rather than than us uh, getting rid of. Unless, <coughs> unless getting rid of is the right thing to be doing. But if we're getting rid of only just to, because uh, of our aversion and not wanting to be bothered, then it's wrong. But if if sending her to hospital is best for her and uh, the right thing to do, then we should do that. <coughs> 